Good morning, everybody. Love the fact that you're here this morning. My name is Aaron Kerr, lead pastor of Mission Life Church. And I want to give a special shout out to all of you graduates out there. Everyone that is moving up to the next step. I love the fact that you are taking your next step. And uh, we just want to celebrate and honor you for a moment, you guys, because this whole school year has been pretty nuts and a very memorable one. Uh, for the rest of us, I am so excited that you're here joining us this morning. I know that you could actually go anywhere uh, online and worship with any kind of community, but you're here with Mission Life Church. I love the fact that you're joining us today. And I also want to acknowledge that wherever you're at in your spiritual journey with God, uh, we want to let you know that you're welcome here. Um, however you're feeling today, I, I know for me, the week, it's kind of been a roller coaster. You know, there's highs, there's lows, there's a sense of, sense of heaviness, there's... We're all coming this morning with all kinds of stuff. And so um, I just want to let you know, as a church, we exist to help people find and follow Jesus to fearlessly change the world. But that doesn't mean that we don't take our emotions seriously and honestly and just lay them before God. So I'm going to just take a moment and pray for us and for you. God, thank you so much for who you are. Thank you that, um, God, that you are meeting us exactly where we are that you're a God who loves to bring comfort, you love to bring healing, you love to bring hope, you love to bring peace, and you also love to bring justice. And we thank you for all of that. God, thank you for our graduates, whether it's moving from elementary school to junior high or junior high to high school, high school to college, college on up. God, we're so grateful. Just special blessings on every one of our graduates today. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Now, when you move into a new neighborhood or maybe you're going off to college and, and hopefully you're going to be able to go and move into your dorm sooner rather than later, or you move into a new apartment complex, I think we're all praying for good neighbors, aren't we? I mean, we're all like, oh my goodness, I hope I get along with the people closest to me. A friend of mine just moved a couple years ago to the East Coast. He and I had grown up together in Northern California, and then he had lived in Southern California for several years with his family. And he got some amazing opportunities to move to the East Coast. And of course, for most of us who kind of grew up in the Southern California area, are like, why would we ever want to go to the East Coast? I know, I know. But the point is, Great opportunity. So they transitioned over to the East Coast. And of course, all of the buddies that we all grew up with are kind of watching everything and checking out. He's taking videos of his new house. And we're all like in awe of this place that he's living. I mean, everything is so lush and green. It's huge. I mean, we all know living in California. And it's like, okay. But he has this huge house. It's backed up against a pond and the lot and the driveway and the tree. I mean, it's just epic. And so we're all kind of trying not to envy. And uh, in the midst of all this, he's ranting and raving how wonderful it is. A couple months go by. And suddenly this dream move has actually turned into a nightmare. He starts to tell us over the next several weeks about a neighbor that is incredibly difficult, that is just doing the, the most annoying and frustrating things, not only to him, but to a whole bunch of the other neighbors, like waking up early and at 7 a.m., kind of getting the leaf blower out, you know, in, in the yard, or, or walking his literal pack of Doberman pincer dogs uh, and, and, and having them do their dirty business on his front lawn and not picking up after them. I mean, there's those kinds of things, and it's like, okay, that's just, all right. But then 
conflict started turning into heated discussions and disagreements, and it just started to escalate. And now the HOA is involved. I mean, it's just this nightmare on Elm Street for them. And I don't know about you, but hopefully you have never had an experience like that with your neighbors, but maybe you have. Uh, maybe some of you have had amazing neighbors and you, you're really good friends and that's fantastic. Some of us, we might not even know our neighbors. So when Jesus talks about loving God and loving our neighbor as the two most important commandments in scripture that really sums up everything that we as God's people are called to do, it can be a little bit confusing because it's like, what exactly does that mean? What does it mean to love our neighbor? I mean, I don't even know my neighbor or I have good neighbors or doesn't that just mean I am a kind person that turns the volume down before I go to sleep at night? I mean, whatever it is, I think it's important for us to understand what God is talking about when he's calling us to love our neighbor. And so today what we're going to do is we're going to unpack what that actually means. Because the more we understand what God has intended for community that he loves, that's designed to thrive, the more it's going to change our lives and our community as well. But if we don't know what it means to love our neighbor, what loving someone else other than maybe a family member looks like, we can miss out. We can miss out on contributing, contributing to the kind of community that God has for people to flourish and to thrive. And I know some of you are sitting here going, Aaron, I'm just trying not to go crazy with the people that live in my own home. <laughs> How on earth am I even going to go ahead and love my neighbor? What's that even look like? We're going to talk about that today. Now, if you are not familiar with the Bible, that's okay. We've got a bulletin for you digitally. Uh, you can click on that and download that right now. You could follow along that way. Uh, but if you have a Bible, turn to Leviticus chapter 19. We're going to start off in Leviticus and we're going to hop into Luke. All right. We want to get to the source of where this whole idea of loving your neighbor comes from. And if you're taking notes, here's really the first point that I really want you to get. The first thing we discover is that God loves community so much that he wants laws that protect it from injustice. That's really the first point. God loves community so much that he actually wants laws to protect it from injustice. See, whatever you believe about God, res God rescues this nation, Israel, in the early part of the biblical narrative to actually form a new nation and, and to become his people, that he would bless them so that they would be a blessing to the world. And so the first thing that he does is he establishes what does it mean to be a community that reflects him, that reflects his heart. And so God says this in Leviticus, he says, be holy because I am holy. In other words, I want you to live like this to reflect me. So in Leviticus chapter 19, verse nine, I'm just gonna read through a couple quick scriptures that gives you a sense of what he's talking about here. And notice the kind of relationships neighbors are supposed to have with each other. Verse nine of chapter 19. When you reap the harvest of your land, you're not to reap to the very edge of your field. Wait a minute. It's my field. Why can't I just go ahead and harvest it all? Notice it's because do not strip your vineyard bare or gather its fallen grapes. Leave them for the poor and the resident alien. I am the Lord your God. The idea is this. There are people in your midst 
that are on the margins, those who don't have what you have. There are people that are foreigners that are living uh, among you that are from another country. They tend to be the ones that are overlooked. They are the ones that tend to need maybe even a little bit more support and assistance. So leave that for them. He goes on, do not steal, do not act deceptively or lie to one another. Do not swear falsely by my name, profaning the name of your God. I am the Lord. In other words, I want you to treat each other fairly. I want you to respect each other's properties and reputations. Notice in verse 13, do not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages due a hired worker must not remain with you until the morning. In other words, if you're paying for somebody to work and labor, you need to pay them fairly. You need to pay them appropriately. Do not wait. There's some people that are literally living paycheck to paycheck. They need that as soon as possible. Do not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block in front of the blind, but you're to fear your God. I am the Lord. Again, another idea where there's people that are disadvantaged. And as a result of that, you're not to oppress them. You're not to take advantage of them. You're, you're to treat them with respect and honor. And you know why you do that? Because I'm the Lord. Because you're gonna reflect my character and my sense of justice to people that are in those situations. So he goes on and on and on. You could read through all of these different laws that God establishes for fairness and respect and justice and work out the, your disagreements and love. Notice this in verse 17. It says, do not harbor hatred against your brother. Rebuke your neighbor directly and you will not incur guilt because of him. Do not take revenge or bear a grudge against members of your community, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Verse 33 also says this, when an alien resides with you in your land, you must not oppress him. You will regard the alien who resides with you as the native born among you. You're to love him as yourself for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord, your God. Look at all these laws that God institutes with his people to let them know, hey, care for one another love one another. I want you to live in light of this. Why? Because it reflects the character of God. So what do we learn from this? Right away, we learn that relationships are not based on self-service. Relationships are not based on power. Relationships are not based on being self-serving at the expense of other human beings. Relationships matter to God and they're based on love. Now, again, we get caught up in this whole word love. Like, what does that mean? It's all, it's all about feelings. That's how our culture defines it, but it's really acting on the betterment of the other. It's acting on the good on somebody else's behalf. And God loves community so much. He wants to protect it from injustice because he knows the tendency for his broken and fallen creation is selfishness. It's comfort. It's self-interest, it's pride. And without loving God as the source of our motivation, disintegration and chaos ensues in relationships. Now, here's what's really interesting. If you think about it, God was establishing this with, for his people, right? And so naturally, what's gonna happen is this the nation of Israel is going to go ahead and protect its own, right? 
the nation of Israel is going to start to go, well, I'm loving my neighbor. I'm loving my fellow Jews. I'm loving the foreigners that reside. Okay, okay, okay. What, what does this mean for other people? I mean, if you think about it, love for one, one's own family, love for one's own tribe or ethnicity or whatever we believe that other people believe as well, it's easy to kind of side with one another, right? I mean, that's just how every single human conflict in history, it seems like, was started. Because I need to protect my own. I need to stand with my own. And in a lot of ways, that's helped protect certain groups throughout human history. And so what's the difference here that God is actually calling community to look like? You know, if you think about it right now, it is so volatile if you hop on social media. If you get on social media, it, it is exhausting because so many people are so angry and, and it seems like everyone's shouting things and no one's listening. And if somebody is listening, they don't like what the other person has to say. They don't agree with it. And, and there's fighting that happens. And then people start unfriending one another. And it's just mayhem. This is just the natural way we operate, right? And so what makes this different or unique? Turn to Luke chapter 9, verse 52. Luke chapter 9, verse 52. As we get into the New Testament, we realize that Jesus has something clearly compelling to build upon this whole idea of loving your neighbor that so many people get when it means loving my people, those closest to me. But Jesus starts to open up the picture of what that actually looks like. In fact, God wants us to love our neighbors like insiders, not outsiders. God wants us to love our neighbors like insiders, not outsiders. And here's the challenge. We tend to limit love to our own, whatever definition that is. So notice Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem and he's leading his disciples to go there. And in the midst of this, they run into a situation that kind of brings to us the question of how do we respond with people who believe things differently and actually have treated us in a way that's been harmful. Notice this in Luke chapter 9. Verse 51, when the days were coming to a close for him to be taken up, he determined to journey to Jerusalem. This is Jesus. He sent messengers ahead of him and on the way they entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But they didn't welcome him because he determined to journey to Jerusalem. No, okay, why didn't they welcome him? Just because he's on his way to Jerusalem. What's the big deal? When the disciples, James and John saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to consume them? Okay, trigger happy guys, what on earth? The Samaritans were not receiving of Jesus, which we don't really understand without, why was that, right? Jesus is a great guy. We want to understand who Jesus is. I mean, who is this guy? He's healing people. He's, what, he's doing all these amazing things. Why didn't they receive Jesus? And then, wow, James and John take a chill pill. What were they responding to? Well, they were responding to centuries of racism and ethnic violence. And so when they saw this slight towards Jesus, all of this stuff started to come out. All of this stuff. So a brief history on the Samaritans and Jews, just to be very quick, 
is the, the city of Samaria actually used to be the former capital of, of the northern kingdom of Israel. There was a time when the nation of Israel was unified, it was one. And then after King Solomon died, it split into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And the northern kingdom was actually called Israel, the southern kingdom was called Judah. Jerusalem was the capital of Judah, Samaria was the capital of Israel. And so why is this significant for us? Well, it was eventually sacked and destroyed by the Assyrians in 721. 30,000 Israelites were deported, they were exiled, they were enslaved. And so in the midst of that, all of these other people groups came in and repopulated the area and mixed in with the people that lived in Samaria prior to that. And so suddenly there's all of this uh, crossbreeding that's happening. <coughs> in fact, Later, the Babylonian Empire came in, destroyed Jerusalem, exiled the Judeans from there. And so there's all this displacement going on, right? But part of the problem was this, <clears throat> is that when it was time for the Jews to return from exile and actually rebuild Jerusalem, which was a miracle in itself, it was like an act of God, the Jews come back. And who is resisting them from rebuilding Jerusalem? It's the Samaritans. Now, why would they do that? Well, because they hated one another because they had different religious views on where to worship God. The Samaritans believed in the first five books of the Bible. They actually worshiped on a, on a mountain called Mount Gerizim. They actually made their own temple, offered sacrifices that way. And the Jews were saying, no, no, the one true temple is supposed to be in Jerusalem. It has to be here. This is where God rules and reigns from here. And so even after all of this destruction, there's still this animosity that is based on ethnicity and a difference in understanding faith. In fact, many of the Jews considered the Samaritans half-breeds because they had intermarried. And to survive under the Assyrian rule, they capitulated in all kinds of ways. And so there was just this antagonism. And if you were a good law-abiding Jew that was traveling from Galilee, where Jesus did a lot of ministry, you would actually have to go through Samaria to get to Jerusalem, which was incredibly dangerous. And as you can see, Jesus wasn't even welcomed there. And so this is where all this tension comes in. And notice James and John are like, let's take them out, Jesus. You can do this. And what does Jesus do? But Jesus said to them, he turned and he rebuked them and he went to another village. He rebuked him. Now, wait a minute. Jesus is supposed to be this Messiah that everyone's anticipating from the Old Testament. He's the one who's going to go ahead and restore Israel and, and all these other nations, these enemies of Israel are going to actually have to kind of repent and God's going to judge them. And aren't the Samaritans going to be those people? And Jesus rebukes them though. There's a history of violence and racism and Jesus rebukes them. But wait a minute, aren't we supposed to just take care of our own? Clearly, no. Luke chapter 10, verse 25 through 26 leads us to another story where we'll land the rest of our time. It's the story of the Good Samaritan. And so many of you have heard this story before, but as you look at Luke chapter 10, verse 25, Jesus is actually responding to a question by a, a Jew who's an expert in the religious law. And notice that Jesus is basically calling us to do what? 
He's calling us to love without limits. The expert in the law stood up to test him saying, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, when we hear that question, we think, okay, is he asking, how do I earn my salvation? That's not really what he's asking. He's asking, how do I have a relationship with God, with you know, loving him with all my heart, my mind, my soul, that affects my whole life, that receives the blessings that God wants for me? And so Jesus responds, he says, okay, that's a great question. You know, what is written in the law, he asks. How do you read it? And here's what he says in verse 27. He answers correctly. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Ding, 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 ding. Right answer. Great job. Do this and you will live, is what Jesus says. You will experience, if you live like this, you will experience that blessing that comes from God, living like that. But wanting to justify himself, verse 29 wanting to justify himself. Have you ever wanted to justify yourself? I know I have. It means I, I wanna impress the people around me. I wanna look a certain way to the people around me. But Jesus knows exactly what's going on in his heart. Because what he's really saying is this, what about the neighbors I don't really like? What about the neighbors that I feel don't deserve that kind of attention and support and care. What about the neighbors who are actually a nightmare for me or are really different than me? Are we talking about my fellow Jews? Are we talking about the neighbors who deserve my help? Because clearly there are some that do not deserve my help. And Jesus answers with this famous parable in verse 30. Jesus took up the question and said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers. The equivalent of this is like going into an inner city neighborhood that is completely broken down because of drugs, crime, and poverty. It's a dangerous place to be. See, the distance from Jericho, which was down below, and Jerusalem was about 17 miles. And it was about a 3,000 foot descent from Jerusalem to Jericho but it was incredibly dangerous. It, it, it was rocky and it was a perfect place for robbers to jump out and be able to take advantage of anybody who was traveling between these two economic powerhouse cities. And so Jesus is telling this story about this terrible situation where this man is walking and it, he's going through a tough neighborhood and what happens is these robbers, they strip him, they beat him up and then they flee, leaving him half dead. Verse 31, a priest happened to be going down that road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Now a priest knows God's law. In fact, was someone who worked in the temple that offered sacrifices. They would know the responsibility to love one's neighbor as oneself. So why doesn't the priest stop over and help this guy out? Well, maybe one of the reasons is because he knows that if he touches a potential dead body, he will be ritually unclean. And he has to go through all kinds of rigmarole to become ritually clean again. And so what happens next is Levite walks by. In the same way, a Levite, when he arrived at the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. Again, somebody who worked in the temple and served in that capacity. These were two highly influential and respected Jewish leaders. And so why wouldn't they respond to this individual? Why wouldn't they respond in this time of need? 
Maybe it was the, the ritual impurity that they were afraid of. Or let's be honest, maybe they were scared because of the road and all the other dangers that it represented. They just wanted to get their head down and get through there as quick as possible and not be distracted in the midst of that. But notice what happens next. Who's going to help this guy out, says Jesus? A Samaritan on his journey came up to him. And when he saw the man, he had compassion. Compassion, that word compassion, it, it means to, to have this feeling out of your bowels. I'm not, I'm not talking about a bowel movement, you guys. I'm talking about this. It's kind of the equivalent of having a broken heart. Your heart breaks. That's how we would describe it today. But that's where the compassion is describing that. He sees the need and he sees this man. He goes, he needs help. And he's overwhelmed. And he goes to him. He goes, I need to help. And he, and he helps him. He lifts him up and he, he goes. And what else does he do? He went over to him and he bandaged his wounds. He poured on olive oil and wine and then he put him on his own animal and he brought him to an inn and he took care of him. A Samaritan. The next day he took out two denarii, which was about two days wages. And he gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him. When I come back, I'll reimburse you for whatever extra you spend. And so Jesus poses the question then back to the expert in the law who's looking to justify himself, who, who's looking to find out where does loving my neighbor have its limitations? Because that's what good lawyers do, right? Where's the line? And he realizes when Jesus asked him in verse 36, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The one who showed mercy to him, he said to Jesus. He couldn't even say Samaritan. Jesus said, go and do likewise. See, what was most humiliating for the questioner in this story is not only the fact that the Samaritan is the model to be a neighbor that he should follow. It's also the fact that the Samaritan actually was the one that was probably demonstrating compassion to a Jew. That's most likely what was going on. And this act of compassion actually rejects all kind of racism, and acts of charity that would possibly come from an air of superiority. Because if you think about it, what the people were really wanting to hear in this story, as Jesus was saying it, it's like, okay, the priest, leave it. Okay, who's going to be the hero? It's going to be a Jewish layperson. They're going to be the ones, right? We know what Jesus says about the religious elite. We know that. Jesus is going to talk about a Jewish layperson that's going to go and rescue the day. And the person that they're going to help, oh my goodness, whoa, it's a Samaritan. Well, of course the Jew would, would help. Yeah, yes. That would be astonishing. That would be shocking, but yes. But that's not the case. Jesus flattens every aspect of pride or arrogance from this story about having ethnic or social stereotypes of any kind that would prevent us from loving people. 
And if that wasn't enough, as a follower of Jesus, in Matthew 5, Jesus says this, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, which again, was not a biblical concept. That was an oral tradition. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. <laughs> so if it wasn't difficult enough, I want you to actually even love your enemies. Apparently the call to love our neighbor is only as limited as our commitment to obey God, engaging in compassion and justice for all kinds of people, no matter what they look like, no matter where they've come from. So why is this so challenging? I mean, we love this story. It's so story is just powerful, right? We're like, whoa, this is so challenging because if you're anything like me, you realize We've all grown up in families and contexts that are impacted by sin. No matter where you come from, we all have been impacted by sin. Even our families, as good as they have been, or maybe not so good. And as a result of that, we've all grown up with biases. We, we've grown up with blind spots. We've, we've grown up with stereotypes socially and ethnically. And sometimes we don't even realize it. And so what's going on right now in our world, especially in our nation, with black livelihood and awareness to injustice that happens, not just to the black community, but to all kinds of communities, of all kinds of ethnic and social backgrounds. It's tempting to sit back and say, well, I, I don't need to do anything serious about that. I mean, that's not really my problem. Or, you know, that's something that a politician needs to deal with. Well, the reality is what God is looking for is a community of people that models to the rest of the world how things are actually supposed to be. And it's all through this God who loves us so much. He wants to show us the way to love our neighbor as we love God. Why else is this hard? Well, sometimes we just don't have eyes to see people. We're, we we, we kind of just like the priest and the Levite, we got our head down and we're just moving, right? We don't have time to focus on other things. We're trying to just focus on the stuff right in front of us. We're having a hard time with just the people right in front of us aside from other people's issues and struggles. Or, or sometimes it's, it's hard to acknowledge people need help because then we start to wonder, what is this going to require of me? You know, what's this going to cost me in time and resources, energy? Or sometimes I think it's difficult because of the pain we know that people are going through. We know that I don't know if I want to get that close to that pain. Uh, I don't know exactly if maybe even I'm going to discover that I'm a part of that pain. And so these are all things that might hold us back from stepping into this kind of love. And yet Jesus clarifies that loving God and loving our neighbor is the most important commandments. This is the most important stuff. When we're investing in others that are very different than us, that, that we demonstrate compassion to what they're going through, it, it opens us up to start to be a bridge of relationship and reconciliation. And so if you were to summarize this message, like if you were to go ahead and say, okay, what, what's the takeaway, Kerr? What, what do you want? Well, this is how I would phrase it. It's this. Is, is loving your neighbor begins with leaving your comfort to practice compassion. 
leaving your comfort to practice compassion. Why should we do that? Comfort is so comfortable because this is what Jesus did with us. If you think about it, Jesus could have sat back and just let us in our own brokenness and fallenness continue on a course of destruction. But you know what God did? He stepped into the darkness of our broken and fallen world. He took on flesh. Why? He left comfort to practice compassion. He sees our helplessness because of sin that has infected every aspect of our life where it's natural for us to do us and them. It's natural for us to say, you're my people and that's those people. Jesus steps into that and he says, I want to make all things new and I want to start with your heart. John 1, 10 says this, he was in the world and the world was created through him and yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own, the, the Jewish people, and yet his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name, who were born not of natural descent or of the will of the flesh but, or of the will of man, but of God. See, God is building a diverse and multi-ethnic family united in Christ. And the good news of Jesus is that because of the fallenness of our own sin, we can be restored to God all because Jesus went first. Jesus does that for us, which then empowers us to do that for other people that are hurting, that are our neighbors, that have been oppressed, that are being disadvantaged. And we're, we're called to be first to step into that. Jonathan Edwards, a famous pastor from the 18th century, said this about how human society is so deeply fragmented when, when anything but God is our highest love. Listen to this. If our highest goal in life is the good of our family, then says Edwards, we'll tend to care less for other families. If our highest goal is the good of our nation, our tribe, our race, these are his words, not mine, then we will tend to be racist or nationalistic. If our ultimate goal in life is our own individual happiness, then we'll put our own economic and power interests ahead of those of others. Edwards concludes that only if God is our ultimate good and life center, will we find our heart drawn out, not only to the people of all families, races, and classes, but to the whole world in general. Now, this was in the 18th century, okay? But the point that he's making is prevalent today, that the good news of Jesus flattens everything. And we see people as God created them, but they're made in his image and they're loved. And we're called to treat them as a neighbor, as God has done with us. So when Jesus says, go and do likewise, what does that mean for us? What does that mean? Well, maybe it simply means this, is cultivate an attitude of leaving comfort to practice compassion. Cultivate that attitude. 
Instead of having a calloused heart, a calloused attitude, a blind eye, somebody that ignores what's going on in our neighborhood or in our community, in our world, we have to step out because Jesus went first too. So we go first as well. Leave our comfort to practice compassion. So here are some ideas. Maybe the first thing you can do is just pray. Just say, God, help me. Help me to see people like you see them. Who am I overlooking that might be right in front of me? Maybe it's my gardener. Maybe it's the person that I, I get a coffee from at, the, at, at Starbucks. Maybe it's, it's the person I, I buy gas from. Maybe it's the person across the street that lives for me, that it comes from a different faith background, has a different ethnicity that I've never met before. Just start to pray and go, God, help me to see people like you see them and start to build a relationship. Ask questions, say hi, smile, start that step. Maybe for some of us, practicing compassion simply means inviting people over to our house that are different than you. Hosting people, opening yourself up, getting to know them. Compassion will come as we identify and hear stories of what people have gone through in their life. And God will open up opportunities to practice compassion. We're not going to know the needs from injustice unless we get to know who the people are in our world. And so maybe for some of us, it's educating ourselves. It's reading up on history. I'll know for me, I've been reading a lot of books lately. One book I'm reading right now is called Be the Bridge by Latasha Morrison. It's a fantastic book. There's a whole bunch of people reading that book, forming groups, discussion groups to get into that, to learn what does this mean to be racial reconcilers? What does it mean to be a bridge? Even our student ministry, I'm so proud of Marcus and Lexi to actually lead the conversations biblically from that material. So great. But we as a church are committed to have those kind of conversations and to go on the journey together to leave comfort and to practice compassion and see God start to change our lives and our relationships in a way that reflects his love. Let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you so much for your kindness towards us. Thank you for having compassion on us. Thank you for demonstrating to us, first and foremost, because of our own brokenness and our sin, that you've come to step out of darkness to rescue us and to start to restore us back into your image. And it's all because of your grace. God, would you help us as a people be people who leave comfort regularly to practice compassion with all kinds of people? because you want us to be a community that doesn't limit our love, but really loves in an unlimited way. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.